A good Sunday morning to each of you. Glad you're here today. Hope you slept well last night and are enjoying a beautiful day and a very special Lord's Day. Now, the Bible says that um, we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, Romans chapter 12. It's also true that we shouldn't think less of ourselves than we ought to think. And I thought about that this morning when I uh, read across Psalm 16, verse 3, which says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. It's good to be with the excellent ones. Uh, and certainly that not because of our own inherent worthiness, but because of the worth placed upon us by God. So it's good to be with you. Glad you're here. We are studying why we believe. And our study for this quarter is basically focusing on three major areas of belief. The existence of God the inspiration of the Bible, and the deity of Christ. And we are today going to conclude our discussion of the existence of God and evidence in favor of his existence. And so we'll be looking at that momentarily. But let's begin, as we always do, by approaching God in prayer, seeking his blessing. Gracious Father, we thank you for the honor and privilege of being able to approach you in prayer. We praise you and offer to you our worship this morning as we think about who you are and contemplate your greatness and your majesty. We can only, in response to that, offer our worship. You are worthy to be praised. And we're grateful for uh, the fact that uh, though you are far above us in greatness, that you've still invited us into your presence. And we pray, Father, that you would look down on us, uh, taking into account our frailties and our weaknesses, and that you would be merciful to us as we recognize uh, our sins and turn from them and turn to you for our healing. Father, we pray that you would bless our class this morning as we continue to study, and we pray that the things that we look at today will, uh, will help us, especially perhaps in conversations that we may have with others uh, who may be contemplating your existence. And we pray that you would bless those conversations and use us to lead people to you. We thank you for the blessing uh, that is Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for all of the blessings uh, that come to us because of and through him. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. We have uh, looked already in uh, previous classes at um, uh, the idea of... Uh, design in the universe and how the fact that design demands that there be a designer. 
And uh, we talked about that in terms of, of other things. For, for example, you don't have a watch unless you have a watchmaker. Uh, you, you don't have a building without some kind of architect behind it. Uh, and so wherever you see evidence of purposeful design, regardless as to whether or not you know everything about that object, you know that there must have been a designer behind it because you don't have design without a designer. Uh, whenever you have things like uh, explosions, you have destruction. We're being asked to believe that our universe, with all of its intricate design, was the result of an explosion. Well, that just defies uh, logic, and it defies the evidence. So we talked about that last time. Today we're going to turn our attention to the existence of morality, the existence of conscience, the existence of ethical standards of right and wrong. And we're going to look at that and show that there cannot be the existence of morality. You cannot have the existence of a code of ethics separate and apart from a belief in God. Now, scientists will deny that. We're going to show how, that, how they can't maintain that position, that the existence of, of morality, the existence of an objective ethical standard is proof of the existence of God. All right? So let's define a few terms. First of all, morality, when we use that word, we're talking about the character of being in harmony or in accord with the principles or standards of right conduct. In other words, when someone is acting morally, they are acting in harmony with the principles of right conduct. Okay? Everybody got that? That's morality. When we talk about ethics, we're talking about the system or the code by which one determines whether or not a particular action is right or wrong. So the ethic tells us, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. All right? Then, when a person is acting morally, they're acting in harmony with the right ethic. Okay? So those two things go hand in hand, though they're not exactly the same. And then when we talk about uh, conscience, we're talking about that quality of the mind that's a part of us that either accuses us of wrongdoing or excuses our actions as being in harmony with what we believe to be right. Say more about conscience in just a moment. But I want for us to, first of all, notice what we learn from these definitions, especially the ones on morality and ethics. The accepted definitions of those two terms assert, first of all, that good and evil, right and wrong, actually do exist, and they are distinguishable. All right? So if we know nothing else, we know that much that if you have a standard of right and wrong, and you can measure whether or not someone is acting in harmony with that, all of that presupposes that right and wrong exist, that they're actual things, they are real, they're objective. And you can distinguish between them. You can tell the difference between right and wrong. Okay? That's going to become important as we delve deeper into this principle. Now, regarding conscience... 
Let's remember that conscience itself does not determine what's moral. Okay? Conscience needs to be educated. A person can do something that may in actuality be wrong, but their conscience is not affected by that because their conscience has not been properly educated to know that that thing that they're doing is wrong. Does that make sense? Paul said in Acts 23, verse 1, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this very day. Paul said, my life was characterized, has always been characterized by living in harmony with my conscience, which we should, you know, which, which is an admirable thing. But it doesn't automatically mean that one's conscience is, conscience is properly educated. Even when Paul was out persecuting Christians, a wrong thing to do, because he didn't at that time realize it was wrong, his conscience did not convict him. Acts 26.9, he said, I thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, that's what I thought was the right thing to do, and so that's why I was doing it. My conscience didn't convict me of that because I thought it was right. So conscience has to be educated by the proper ethical standard. But the existence of the conscience itself implies the existence of a moral code. Because the conscience is going to act in harmony with what it believes to be right and wrong. So that implies that right and wrong, again, do exist. There is an ethical standard. The problem with, the, um, with atheism is that it will never be able to supply an adequate explanation for this moral code. We'll say more about that in a bit. So, how do the atheists and the agnostics, those that don't want to accept God's existence, how do they try to deal with what they agree exists? The atheist agrees that, 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 uh, that conscience exists. The atheist agrees that there's right and wrong. So how have they tried to explain right and wrong without bringing God into the question? Here are some of their offerings. The first one uh, is called hedonism. Basically, hedonism says that the greatest good, good is determined by what brings the greatest physical pleasure and the least amount of pain. Okay? So a hedonist, by definition, is one who seeks only his own physical pleasure and seeks to deny any kind of activity that would bring pain into his life. Make sense? That's the hedonist. So good is determined by what brings the greatest pleasure and the least pain. Now to be consistent, then, the hedonist must be willing to excuse even the vilest behaviors in himself and in others. If a person defends that behavior on the basis of, well, it brings me the greatest pleasure. And if good, if right, is determined by what brings somebody the greatest pleasure, then that person, based upon the hedonistic philosophy, could say, I am doing the right 
thing. I am being moral by following this standard of whatever it is that brings me the greatest pleasure is what's right. Now, it doesn't take the wisdom of Solomon to see through that. What if? What if the greatest pleasure a particular individual may feel is that which comes to him through rape and murder? In other words, what if somebody says that the rape and murder of a child brings me the greatest pleasure and the least pain? Therefore, according to hedonism, that action is not only allowable, it's demanded because the fact that it brings me pleasure is what makes it right. It's what makes it moral. And so, the hedonist would have to argue, I should be allowed to do that and not censured from it and certainly not punished for it because I'm only doing what's right. And what's right is what brings me the greatest pleasure. Now, are we willing to contend that no one, not even the state, should punish an individual for that? I would argue that even somebody who claims to be a hedonist would ultimately find himself having to disavow the concept that, that anything goes. I don't know that you'd find a hedonist that would be willing to embrace the implications of his own ethical standard. But that's what hedonism is. And if you're going to be a hedonist and be a consistent one, then you'd have to embrace that. What about utilitarianism? This is another attempt that uh, atheists have tried to use to explain morality and to put together a standard of morality. Utilitarianism is very similar to hedonism, but it defines good in terms of what brings the greatest pleasure or the greatest good to the greatest number of people. Pure hedonism is centered on the individual. What is it that brings me the greatest pleasure? That's the greatest good. Utilitarianism says, no, the, it, good and right is determined by what's good and right for the most amount of people, for the majority of people. That's what's good. Incidentally, this was a position advocated by Joe Barnhart uh, in a debate uh, in 1980 that he had with one of our brethren, Brother Thomas Warren. Brother Warren debated a lot of atheists and uh, and, and others in his life. And uh, if you ever get a chance to read some of his debates, do that. Um, but Barnhart took the utilitarian position and argued that it was the right position. Brother Warren argued that the biblical ethic is the right one. But here's the point with utilitarianism. It still fails to define how one is to determine what the greatest good to the greatest number of people actually is. Utilitarianism doesn't really answer the question. It says the greatest good is whatever is good for the most amount of people. Well, then you're left with the question, all right, well, what's good for the most amount of people? You still have to have a standard by which you determine that. You know, Hitler argued that his desire to create a master race was for the good of the greatest number of people. He was actually arguing, in some ways, from a utilitarian ethic. His point was that... For the greatest good of the world, we need to 
get rid of inferior races of people and create this master race because that's what's going to bring the greatest amount of good to the greatest amount of people. And his view was the Jewish people in particular were, were by far an inferior race and so they needed to be exterminated because the non-Jewish community in the world certainly outnumbered the Jewish community. So, since it would be better for the greater amount of people, then we'll just exterminate those that he considered to be lesser. Now, would anyone's rightly functioning conscience allow that? I don't believe it would. So again, I think with the utilitarian, uh, you're going to have a hard time finding one that will truly be consistent with the implications of that particular ethic. But that's, what, that's how they've tried to do it. They're trying to find ways where they can say, all right, here's a standard by which we judge right and wrong, but we're not going to include any reference to God in determining that standard. It's going to have to be something else. So they come up with hedonism, utilitarianism, uh, situationism. Uh, Joseph Fletcher, uh, the father of situation ethics, which basically asserts that right and wrong are fluid. Uh, they change as each situation changes. Uh, but again, you're still left with the problem of what happens if two people are involved in the same issue, the same conflict, the same situation, and both of them have different opinions as to what the right way to handle that situation is. Situationism says there is a right way to handle it, and there is a wrong way to handle it. And the situation will determine that. Well, not until two people disagree on the situation. And then, still then, you're back to square one, and you still have no standard by which to determine what the situation demands. So situationism doesn't really answer uh, the question. Then you've got determinism. Determinism basically says, you know, they're really, you really can't hold people accountable, morally accountable, for their choices. Because, on the one hand, some argue, some determinists argue, that human beings are genetically pre-programmed to act the way they do. So whatever it is that people choose to do, they do it because they're genetically pre-programmed to act that way. And so if you have a person who's very aggressive, uh, you know, the, and, and perhaps that aggression shows itself in, uh, in physical abuse or murder, well, you know, they're, they're only acting that way because that's their genetics. They're born that way. Nature determines that. That's the ethic of the sociobiologist. Now, other determinists say, no, people act the way they act because of nurture because they've been programmed by circumstances uh, and experience that they're just responding based upon how they've been uh, conditioned to react. So it's the old nature versus nurture thing. Uh, it, uh, the, the, the behaviorist view that you know, human beings are no different than Pavlov's dog. Remember that famous uh, uh, experiment that Pavlov did with a dog where... 
Uh, he would ring a bell, and every time he would ring a bell, uh, the dog would get a treat. And he did that over and over and over again. And then he stopped giving the treat, but would continue to ring the bell. And every time he rang the bell, the dog would act the same way, even without the treat, the salivating, the all that. And so he said, you know, we created that scenario where the dog is going to react that way because we have conditioned him to react that way. The behaviorists in humans would argue the same thing. We react to situations the way we do because that's how we have been programmed through experience. Now, in both of those cases, whether it's nature or nurture, whichever one of those the, the scientist wants to argue, either way, man is ultimately absolved of personal responsibility because ultimately he can't help what he does. He doesn't have any control over it. Whether he's born that way or whether he's been conditioned to react that way, he doesn't really have any control over that, so we can't hold him morally responsible. Again, are we willing to live in a society that operates that way? Are we willing to embrace, will our conscience allow us to embrace that kind of philosophy? If we would not punish a lawnmower for cutting off a child's foot, why would we punish a human being for doing the same thing if they're both just machines? Right? And that's what you're left with. So those are the ways that the atheists, they, have, they admit that there is conscience. They admit that there, are right, that there is right and there is wrong in the world. So how are we going to explain how right and wrong exist? That's how the atheist has approached it, but they're approaching it, remember, by saying, in whatever we come up with, it's not going to include God because we don't believe in God. Well, that's what you're left with. That. All right. So let's talk about reality. Morality exists. And again, the atheist readily admits that. And the atheist also admits that morality only exists in humans. George Gaylord Simpson uh, who wore the nickname Mr. Evolution because of his uh, dogged defense of atheistic evolution. He wrote, morals arise only in man. All right, he's right about that, and he recognized that. So morality exists, and it exists only in humans. Animals don't have it. Plants don't have it. Only humans do. And the atheist's vocabulary just like the theist's vocabulary has the words ought in it and ought not. The atheist will do that just as much as anybody else. Well, you ought to do this, and you ought not do that. Which leads to the question for the atheist, why? Why ought anyone do anything? And why ought not people to do certain things? No sane person is going to consistently argue that absolutely anything goes. Even the atheist will say, you know what, there are some things that people just simply ought not do. Now, the atheist is going to have to explain why that's the case. All right? We're going to talk about the implications of that. There are only two options to explain the existence of morality. Just two. Either... Morality is grounded in the mind of man and therefore is defined by man. In other words, morality either exists because we human beings created it 
or it's grounded in a source that is external to man. That would be God. Now, in order for atheism to stand as fact, atheism has to prove that rocks and dirt ultimately devised and promoted morality. Ultimately, because that's ultimately what everybody came from, rocks and dirt. George Gaylord's sister Evolution conceded this point when he wrote the following. In his book, The Meaning of Evolution. I want you to listen. This is an atheist. This is Mr. Evolution. He says this. The workings of the universe cannot provide any automatic, universal, eternal, or absolute ethical criteria of right and wrong. All right, so he admits that. The the workings of the universe cannot provide any automatic, universal, eternal, or absolute ethical criteria of right and wrong. But if the universe is all that there is, then whence comes ethical standards? Well, according to the evolutionists, it has to have been something devised by human beings. So if morality is man-authorized, man-centered then it's impossible for anyone to argue for any singular system of ethics to which others must be urged to comply with. Does that make sense? In other words, take hedonism. If hedonism is a man-made creation, then, then upon what basis would I try to argue that every other human being is required to be a hedonist? But if right and wrong are determined according to hedonistic philosophy, then I should expect for people to be hedonists if I'm concerned about right and wrong. But if utilitarianism is a man-made ethic, then why would I try to get somebody to be a utilitarian? Because if, if they disagree with me, so what? So ultimately... Ultimately, ethics, morality, becomes an individual being his own God. If there's no God above us, then ultimately you're left with everybody being his own God. In which case, we are forced to accept that, yeah, I guess anything goes. How can I oppose something that somebody else does and tell that person, you should not do that? If that person believes, he should do that. Am I over that person? In other words, am I the authority over that person? He would have just as much authority for his moral decisions as I have for mine. Does that make sense? So the motivation for morality is one of two things. For the theist, the believer in God, the motivation for morality is simple. A moral God exists. 
And this God has revealed to us the characteristics of moral conduct and has obligated us to follow those principles for our own good and for His glory. When somebody asks you as a, as a Christian, what's the basis, what's your basis for moral conduct? That's it. A moral God exists. He's revealed to us what proper moral ethical conduct is. And He's obligated us to follow those principles for His glory and for our ultimate good. That's the motivation for being moral. We will stand before Him and answer one day for the choices that we've made. And whether or not those choices align with His revealed will. Now for the atheist, the evolutionist, he has but one recourse. If you were to ask him, what is the motivation for morality? Where did that come from? Why do individuals, why do people have within them this sense of ethical conduct? Regardless of what they think the standard is, everybody has within them something that prompts them to do what they believe is right and accuses them of wrongdoing when they do what they believe is wrong. So what, where did that motivation for morality and human beings come from? The atheist has but one answer. It had to have evolved. It had to have come to humans through the process of evolution. Just like everything else that's a part of the human species. It came through the process of macro-evolution. What is the modus operandi of the evolutionary process? In other words, what characteristics, according to evolutionary theory, what characteristics uh, always survive the process? The ones that are necessary for preservation, right? Only the strong survive? Survival of the fittest? So evolutionary theory says, as, as things evolve, they ultimately jettison unnecessary characteristics. And they will only retain the characteristics that are necessary for their survival. Question. Have animals survived without a moral code? Yeah, animals don't have a moral code. The pit bull that hops the fence and mauls a two-year-old child feels no twinge of conscience for doing that. The lion that um, you know that that chases down a gazelle, baby gazelle at that, feels no twinge of conscience for doing that, and he wouldn't feel any different if he attacked a human being, did the same thing. Animals have, again, according to evolutionary theory, if you're going to argue from that perspective, animals have survived without a moral code. Do plants have a moral code? Does the tree that drips sap on your brand new car feel any twinge of conscience for having done so? <laughs> no. So evidently, possessing a moral code is not an evolutionary necessity. 
But if evolution only allows the necessary characteristics to survive, then whence the sense of morality? Evolution cannot explain it. Evolution has no answer for the existence of a moral code. In addition to that, what if I decide that the moral code of general society should be placed under my personal desire for happiness? Let's just say for the sake of example that everybody on the face of the planet has reached a conclusion that eating chocolate cake is immoral. I know, God forbid. Let's just say for the sake of argument that the entire planet has concluded that to eat chocolate cake would be an evil act. But I come along and say, you know what? I don't believe that. I believe eating chocolate cake is not an immoral act. Upon what basis would the rest of the world say, you're wrong? Because what would, what would their conclusion be the result of? Well, just a few human beings getting together and deciding what's right or wrong. Well, who's to say they know better than I do? Who's to say that, that their opinion is more valuable than my opinion. Does that make sense? If, if value, if morality exists only on the plane of human beings, then basically all you've got to define morality comes down to personal likes and dislikes. Somebody likes something, so they think it's moral. Somebody doesn't like something, then it's immoral. And it goes back to what we said a moment ago. If there are no absolute ethical standards of right and wrong, then each individual becomes his own God. And some people are basically willing to, to express that. The humanist manifestos, both one and two, express that sentiment. Humanist manifesto reads this way. Ethics is autonomous and situational. End quote. All right? Autonomous means what? Self-governing. Right? We talk about congregations of the Lord's church being autonomous, right? And that's true. This congregation has no authority over some other congregation of the Lord's church. Our elders don't have authority over anybody else's congregation. Right? We are an autonomous group of the Lord's people. We don't answer to any kind of synod or council or anything like that, right? We are autonomous, self-governing. The humanist says, well, as far as ethics are concerned, ethics are autonomous. They are self-governing. So, whatever I think is ethical is ethical. Whatever I think is morally right is morally right. And if somebody else thinks that the opposite thing is morally right, well, guess what? That's morally right for them. But what happens when those two things come in conflict? What if I say it is morally right for me to um, to take Alan's piece of chocolate cake? 
And Alan says, I beg to differ. It's morally wrong for you to take my piece of chocolate cake. Which one of us is right? We can't both be. And the fact that we know that is a part of the conscience mechanism that's inherent within the human mind that God put there. And we may not know how to resolve that conflict. But one thing we do know is, it is a conflict and both of us cannot be right. The evolutionist, the atheist, cannot explain how that has occurred. How that exists within humans. And so if there's no God, then anything is permitted. We just get to make up our own rules. Brother Warren uh, really pushed that issue in a different debate. The debate he had with Anthony Flew in uh, 1976 up in Denton, uh, north of Dallas. And I think I've used this example uh, before. And I'll not belabor it because we're going to run out of time. But basically... Basically, Dr. Flew, who was an atheist, incidentally, just a few years before Dr. Flew died, he abandoned his atheistic position. He didn't become a New Testament Christian. He became basically a deist. Uh, he said that he had come to believe that, yes, there is a God, but he didn't believe that God had had any um, interaction with the world. We'll talk about that, actually, in the sermon this morning. But at the time of the debate, he was... A, uh, he was and avowed atheist. But he argued in the debate, forced to by, by Brother Warren, that the Nazis were guilty of real, objective, moral wrong in trying to exterminate the Jewish people. Dr. Flew had served in the British um, military in, in World War II. And, uh, and, he, and he said that, that the Nazis were guilty of real, objective, moral wrong. Brother Warren pressed him. Upon what basis did he make that conclusion? The Nazis were not guilty of violating American law because they weren't Americans. They weren't accountable to that law. They weren't guilty of violating British law because they weren't accountable to British law. They weren't uh, British. They, they weren't guilty of violating Russian law. They weren't Russian. And that was the Nazis' um, defense at the Nuremberg trials. And so what, what law did they violate? They didn't violate German law because... Hitler said, this is what you're supposed to do. So they were acting in harmony with the law to which they were accountable. And the Nazis argued that at Nuremberg. And they said, we reject this trial. We reject the basis that it's being acted upon because we are not subject to any of those laws. And they said, and by the way, we reject the concept of international law. Which is what Flew tried to argue in the debate that the Nazis were guilty of, of having violated international law. But international law is just as much human law as... American or British law is. So you still haven't avoided the conflict there. But in the Nuremberg trials, one of the chief prosecutors, Robert Jackson, who was a Supreme Court Justice of the United States, he was prosecuting at Nuremberg. He contended that the Nazis were being judged based upon what he called a law that, is, that, that goes beyond, that transcends the provincial and the transient, were his words. Provincial having to do with geographic location and transient having to do with the passage of time. His argument was you're being, you're being judged based upon a law that goes beyond any geographical boundary and that spans any length of time. You can't go anywhere on the planet 
and defend what you did as morally right. And you can't live in any period of time and argue that in that period of time what you were doing was right. So he's saying you're being judged based upon a law that goes beyond any human law. And that was true. All right. Let's talk about um, the God-centered ethic. We're going to talk about the inspiration of the Bible in coming weeks, beginning next Sunday, Lord willing. So we'll talk about Bible inspiration. But let's just assume that for now, that the Bible is inspired. It is the Word of God. The God of the Bible is described as eternal, not bound by time and space. He is holy, He is just, and He is good. And there are plenty of Bible passages that, that affirm that. I think I've got those on your hand. Goodness emanates from God because God is by nature good. Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. Mark 10, 18. And so whatever God does... Whatever God commands, whatever God obligates, is by definition good because goodness emanates from Him. He can do nothing that's not good. And biblical morality is designed to develop within us right attitudes, right actions, right, right attitudes that then... Uh, translate into actions for the desired result of bringing human beings into harmony with the divine ideal and standard, which will ensure both present and eternal happiness all to the glory of God. That's the biblical ethic. Now, I want to close because you know we're bringing to a conclusion our discussion of the existence of God and evidence that points to His existence and poking holes in uh, the atheistic assumptions. But I want you to consider this question. Who's being irrational in this whole debate? The atheist often charges the theist with being completely irrational by acting out of harmony with the known evidence. They'll say things like, well, you know, scientists deal with facts. You religionists deal with your fanciful ideas that contradict the facts. Scientists are the rational ones. We're only adopting positions that are in harmony with the evidence. That's the charge. All right. Who's being irrational? The atheist must, to hold true to his position, believe that God does not exist in the absence of the evidence to the contrary. Think about this. If an atheist claims to be a full, avowed atheist, an atheist is one who says, I know that God does not exist. An agnostic is a little bit more measured and says, well, we can't really know either way. If there is a God, it's impossible for us to reach that conclusion. But there may very well be one. 
That's the agnostic. The atheist says, I know that God does not exist. If somebody makes that affirmation, they are affirming a universal negative, which means in order for them to prove their statement, they basically have to claim to know everything. You know why? Because the atheist says, I know that God does not exist. And you say, well, would you, would you say that there are probably some things in this world that you don't know? Well, I think they'd have to say, well, yeah, there are probably some things I don't know. Well, what if one of the things that you don't know is the fact that God exists? So if you're going to say, I know that God does not exist, then you're putting yourself in a position of affirming a universal negative, that you have done all the research, that you have looked everywhere, and that God simply does not and cannot exist. It's like me saying, I know for a fact that there is no such thing in this world as a red rock with five blue dots on it. If I say, I know that there is not one of those things that exists in the world, what's your first question to me going to be? Well, have you looked everywhere in the world to determine whether or not one of those exists? Is there some place in this world you haven't looked? Might it be possible that in those places you haven't looked is the rock that you say doesn't exist? It's a good question for the atheist. What if the thing that you say you don't know is the very thing that you deny. So that's a universal negative. So he has to simply say, well, I don't believe that God exists. But he can't say he knows it. So who's being irrational? The atheist must believe in the absence of proof that matter is either eternal or it created itself out of nothing. Those are their only two options. Matter exists. It's either been here eternally, or it created itself. And do you know that there are principles in science that the atheistic scientists embrace that deny both of those? That matter is not eternal, and it's impossible for something to create itself. The atheist must believe without proof that life spontaneously generated. The atheist must believe without proof that rocks and dirt evolved morality and consciousness. The atheist must believe without proof that one species of animal changed into a completely different one. Those are all things that atheists have to believe and they have no proof that any of that ever happened. Christianity is based on the factual testimony of eyewitnesses. We saw Him. We beheld His glory. We did not follow cunningly devised fables. 2 Peter 1.16 We are eyewitnesses. So who's being irrational? Don't let the white lab coats intimidate you. The truth is the truth. Now I know we haven't covered every corollary subject on this, on the existence of God, like evolution, age of the earth, things like that. But I believe the topics that we have covered are sufficient to establish the case. God is. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll start looking at evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Thank you much.